feel like Shane now. He always holds a mic. I've never done this. The price is right. This is to record it, by the way. I like to record these, and this is so you can hear me. I was told in the back nobody could hear me. Now can you hear me? Are we good? Let me open us in prayer, and we will dive in. I think, I think Satan wants to stop this sermon, but it's going to happen and for the Lord. Let's pray. Amen. Thank you. Father, we praise you that um, there is freedom in Christ, and that you've given us this freedom. And we praise you that no matter what forces are against us, they've been disarmed. And I pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to fully or more fully understand what's already taken place if we are Christians, that we've been set free. And if there are those here, Lord, who are not Christians or who are struggling, I pray they would hear the music of the gospel for your glory. Amen. This is the beginning of Freedom from the Struggle. Next week will be part two. Uh, We're really moving into the thick of the Colossian heresy. As many of you know, um, Paul will often write a letter because there's a heresy. The challenge with the Colossian heresy is no one really knows what the specific heresy is. There's been many, many pages of ink written about it. Um, I, I think it reminds me a little bit of <clears throat> Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? We don't know what his thorn was, so what does that do? That invites all of us in. We all have elements of this struggle. And I would say that everyone that has walked into the room today will fall prey to the, the root of the heresy, which is simply to be taken captive by human Deceit. That's what we're going to look at. That's the fallen condition. Um, now, that was all going to be said before I read the text. It is hard to switch. I, at the last minute, asked Abby to read because I thought if you could hear her wonderful accent, that might give you a little joy before I get up here with my Oklahoman accent. Uh, I was just processing this concept this, uh, re- earlier this week. and How many of you have read the Ugly Duckling story? We all know the Ugly Duckling story. That's our story, right? We are being raised in situations where we're looking around going, why am I different? We feel different. We feel ugly. And what Paul is saying is you are a beautiful swan in Christ. You are free. You are lovely. You are beautiful. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I hope you'll see that freedom. Uh, I hope you'll learn that you are designed for that freedom. I hope you'll admit that you often give that freedom away. You're taken captive. But then this, at the end of this discussion, hopefully we'll find that <clears throat> Christ regains that freedom for us. We have a process in this passage by which we regain the freedom. So, you're designed for freedom. Um, this passage was going to originally start in verse 5. I backed up a few verses, excuse me, verse 6. And I don't know if it's on the screen behind me. Can we get the scripture up there again? In verse 2... And three, Paul says, I'm just going to paraphrase, so you can, you can look at me and I'll paraphrase, you can trust me. Jesus is amazing. I'm just going to use my language. Jesus is glorious, all the treasures of Jesus. Then he says, don't be deluded. And then he gives in six and seven kind of the heart of what we're going to talk about. As you receive Christ, so walk in him. And then in eight, he picks back up, don't be taken captive. And then nine through 15, Jesus is awesome. That's kind of a chiasm in this passage. That's what we're looking at. But the underlying, underlying realization is you are designed to be free. 
That's what you're designed to do. Freedom is what you're built to do. If you are in Christ, and quite frankly, all humans are designed this way, are to be built free, but only Christ can set you free. That's the way it was in the garden. We were built to walk in the cool of the day, but the fall has come in and ruined that. And um, because of the fall and because of our flesh, we now try to operate instead of freedom by means of the law or rules or legal methods. Uh, I was brainstorming this with Shane this week. We were talking about what would be a good illustration like a car. And one of the things I've said before is, you know, you can put the wrong. Have you ever put the wrong fuel in your car? That's a good illustration. But, but then we, I said, man, what about this? Your neighbor just bought a brand new, I don't know, Lexus. It's beautiful. And then you watch this neighbor hook up a team of horses to it. And then start putting the car in neutral and go down the street at four miles an hour smiling and beaming with how amazing this new Lexus is, right? And you're thinking, don't they understand? Like I can turn the key and there's like, a combustion engine that will drive that thing with, I don't know how many horses. What's the horsepower of a Lexus? Hundreds. That's, that's what we do. We're designed for freedom, yet we live on the flesh, right? And so this first point is a positive point about this freedom we have. And I, I was trying to think about, um, this is just so strange. I don't feel, I was designed for freedom, and now look what I have. I'm chained. It's a perfect, God gave me the perfect illustration. One of the things I, wanna, I want you to hear me on is nobody in this room that is a Christian. Now this message is, if you're not a Christian, of course this message is for you. But my belief is as Christians, we often are captive by the things of this world. And um, what, we don't realize it because we sort of separate our religious thinking from the ways we're captive. And another way we do this, especially, I think all of us do this, but especially young people, is we say things like, well, I like Jesus. He's a good God, a good Savior. But then we get really excited about other things. And what I want to communicate in this first point is that what you feel about anything that you're excited by, Jesus is more than that. Jesus is the treasure in him are all the riches. So let's begin to at least in our brains say, like, I love a vacation, or I love to eat that, or I love to go there. Those are great things, but they point to something greater, right? Um, I was trying to think about how to illustrate that. I remembered a letter, so I found it from C.S. Lewis. He often answered letters beautifully, and he answered especially letters from children. Well, there was one letter written by the child's mom. Remember, C.S. Lewis wrote for the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you'll remember the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, he would say, for certain, the Christ figure. It wasn't sort of an accidental allegory. He purposefully made Aslan to be the Christ figure. And there was a, a child um, whose name was Lawrence who became very convicted because he thought, man, I like Aslan more than I like Jesus. And so his mom finally decides, okay, I'm going to just write C.S. Lewis and get, have him talk to my son about how his love for Aslan isn't sinful. So here's, here's Lewis's answer. Tell Lawrence from me with love. He can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he's doing. 
For the things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks he is loving Aslan, he is really loving Jesus and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before. I don't think he need to be bothered at all. God knows all about the way a little boy's imagination works. He made it after all. I think that's a beautiful answer. Let me be very, very clear. I'm not saying, if you say, I love my cup of coffee more than Jesus, you could apply that letter. That's a problem. Okay? But I would say, here's how you could apply that letter. Either I love this cup of coffee as an end in and of itself, or I'm able to enjoy this cup of coffee because the creator of all earth and time and space made this and made taste buds, and I can enjoy this. But, but furthermore, the pleasure sensors in my body are really aimed and supposed to be aimed at Jesus. So I need to now move beyond the cup of coffee and worship him and be delighted in him and have freedom in him. Now, my guess is a lot of us in the room are going, that sounds lovely. How? Anyone want to know how? I'm going to tell you how. Second point, I'm going to talk to you about the loss of freedom. Paul, what's encouraging about this passage is he's talking to people who have already accepted Christ. So everything he is saying is not new for the people receiving the letter. It may feel brand new, but it's not new. What Paul is doing is he's reminding them of their first love, Jesus. He's saying, here's what's true of you. Let me tell you your story. So keep that in the background as we look at this um, second thought. And that is this. Paul warns in verse 8, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So the loss of freedom. Jesus is our freedom, point number one. Point number two, the loss of freedom. We actively give away our freedom. Right? And here's what Paul says. Do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Um, I mentioned a lot of writing on the heresy in Colossians. Well, there's almost as much writing on these words um, in verse 8. The elemental spirits. Another way of saying that would be the elemental principles there in verse 8. That doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. It appears again in verse 20, and it appears twice in Galatians. Um, I want to tell you, I want to read you the Galatian version. So Paul in Galatians is dealing with a, a group, a heresy there where a group of people have come in and convinced the Christians that yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but in order to worship him properly, they need to follow Jewish law, like circumcision. Paul doesn't get just a little bit angry. He gets pretty upset because it deludes the gospel. And in chapter 4, he tells his audience in Galatia, he says, um, he's talking about the Jews. He says, in the past, the Jews were under the guardians and the managers until the date set by the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What is he saying there? He's saying there are these ceremonial laws that were placed before us that pointed us to Christ. And the temptation, I'm not, he, I don't think he's suggesting that every single Jew did this, but the tendency would be to be enslaved by those things if you're not careful, to make the thing the end. Does that make sense? 
But then he ties it into the Galatians who are pagan. He says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know be, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? What Paul is saying there, and what he, I believe he's saying here in Colossians is very simple. You have been set free from law. So here's the, here's the challenge. Do you believe that you've been set free from law, right? How, how, does, how does righteousness still grip you? My job right now is to convince you that everyone in this room lives by the law. That's my job. So several of you go, yeah, I can kind of already see that. And several of you are like, no. And then the majority of you are like, I've already quit listening. How much longer? Okay, for those that are still listening and yet not agreeing with me. Um, have you ever said this or heard someone say this? Yesterday I went outside with my significant other and I watched the sunset and all was right in the world. Raise your hand if you ever heard that or said that yourself. All was right in the world. Well, ac across town someone was being mugged. So was it really all right? Or are you suggesting that for you, you had a particular set of values in that moment that when they were being met, you felt like all was right in the world? And furthermore, that as soon as that moment was over and it was time to figure out what was for dinner, all was not right in the world now. Now you're back to where you always are. Like I've got to keep things moving and, and get more you know, things to work in my life. In other words, while our rules and that we've set are working, all is right. But the rest of the time, there's a problem, and we're constantly trying to fix it. That's my that's what I'm. Um, that's the premise here that that for for the Colossians and for us, you know, when we allow other things to begin to guide what we think is good and valuable in this life then that's our own laws. That's us following elemental principles. That, that's us finding this world to be the way we're justified versus Jesus. Let me give some obvious examples of this. Um, and here, again, here's the premise. The premise is you think, I love Jesus. I just need to buy a juicer. If I buy the juicer, Jesus is great. But if I buy this juicer and start juicing, like all will be right in the world. Why? I don't see how those two things conflict. And the answer is, well, Jesus is all the riches and treasures. And all of a sudden, we're letting something else woo us away from him. Please understand me. Juicing is perfectly fine. It's when it captures my attention. Uh, I think the most obvious thing, way we do this is, I think, with religious duty. Many of us have had a background in or are currently struggling in seeing ourselves evaluated along the lines of religious performance. Church attendance, Bible verses read or memorized, quiet times, those kinds of things. I think that's the low-hanging fruit of this passage. Do not allow yourself, and of course next week we'll deal with more specifically starting in verse 20 with what's happening there, but just in general, do not allow yourself to be measured by what you do. 
or what you don't do, right, religiously. How about reputation? Um, I had a, a, a friend of mine preach. It was actually, um, I think it was Brent Harriman, so for the whites. Give a shout out to your brother-in-law. He once said in a sermon, we never get past junior high. Um, in junior high, it's perfectly okay to say, I'm a jock. He's a whatever, she's a whatever, like, you know, the artist, the whatever. It's like labels are normal in junior high. For some reason, we accept that. We even put ourselves in those camps. You know, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I love to study. And, and so we allow ourselves to be named by what? A set of rules, a set of expectations. But the rest of your life, I think you live in that lifestyle. All of us do. Some of you are really great uh, hosts of parties, and you're terrified of throwing a bad party. Everyone, some of you are really good. I'm, I'm in this camp. I love to be on time. So when I'm not on time, I feel like I'm undone. Reputation, right? What's your reputation? What are you known for? What part of your personality do you clothe yourselves with, you know? Where do you find your identity? Is it your appearance? I mean, how many of us, we, we do, we think about either how we look physically or the clothes we wear or the car we drive or the home we keep. And, and again, these are all great things in and of themselves, but so often what we're doing is we're building up systems of rules by which we want to be measured. And in the beginning of that process, that gives us life, right? Um, I was kind of talking with Doug about this this week. We verbalized a lot. And he's like, okay, let me throw one at you. How about math? I just want to do math. Where is that? How does that fit into your sermon? I said, well, first of all, math is of God's created math, all that. We know that stuff, point number one. But why do you love math? Now, it wasn't Doug because he doesn't necessarily love math. So I can just imagine like a person saying, well, when I was eight years old, I got an A on a math test. And my father smiled at me for the first time. So I knew then and there, I was going to excel at math. And so, now I know I'm being a little bit generic here. But you go beyond that and you begin to do something like math because you're good at it. But you want the affection. You want to be known for that. People come to you, hey, you're good at math. I could draw growing up. So every day, hey, can you draw me this? Can you draw me that? It's an identity marker. And at first, it's exciting. It's alluring. But eventually, if that's what we're defined by, it begins to crush you. Right? I have to keep throwing the parties. I have to keep keeping up with the decor. I've got to keep with, up with the, the body image or the, or the clothing. And these are all laws. And I think what the problem we do is we separate this from our religion. We say, I'm reformed. I love justification by faith. Totally. I can quote the Westminster Confession backwards and forward. But we live over here. And we're being taken captive. And it's dragging us in. And I think there are some great um, tests you can do to see if that's something you struggle with. Let's see if I can find them. Here's a couple of questions for you. <clears throat> do you ever, can you say these things? I live as though my actions will make God or other people approve of me. I am preoccupied with myself. I foster an independent spirit. I can become critical and judgmental. I tend to be dominated by fears and anxieties. I have developed barriers to loving others. Have you, are any of these ringing true? 
A lot of them ring true for me. Those are, those are conditions, those are outflow or fruit of me not resting in the freedom of Jesus, but having set up new standards by which I'm measuring myself. I do it all the time. I mean, preaching is one of them. I just read a story this week about a guy who, um, he burned out in ministry because he wanted a mega church. He was in Southern California. He went to plant a church right where on the time Saddleback was blowing up. And uh, someone said, you need to go to that town because there's not a church there, meaning mega church. So he went in and he's going to build this mega church and it didn't become mega. It was a good church, but not mega. So they had a building. I envisioned it around this size. And he said, you know, we can only fit so many people in this room. Hey, by the way, this isn't me. I'm not doing some veiled attempt at myself, trust me. Uh, and then he went to lunch at like Fuzzy's. Okay. Um, then the guy said, let's rent. The, the, there's a school across the street. They have a huge auditorium. Let's rent that. So they have their building, and they're all dragging things over there, like sound systems and chairs, trying to grow. And they grew a little bit. And then people started burning out, and he got dour. And they came back into their church uh, and said, let's just go back to our space. People left, and he, he basically said, I'm, I'm burned out. I'm done. And he had to take like a really long sabbatical. Okay, so so far right now, I'm right on line with me. Um, but here's where it changed. No, I'm kidding. It's actually a really, uh, it's a great story because what he realized was he was not resting in Jesus. He had lost the value of church, and all he was doing was trying to build a reputation, and it crushed him, and it will crush you. Reputation will crush you. I, I talked to my friends that are in academia. It, it feels like that entire world is set up. You have to be very, very careful. It's set up to lure you in and get tenure and then crush you. right? And then maybe dangle the carrot on the other side if that carrot ever exists. Where are you captive? Where are you held captive? Where are you stuck? I want to now talk uh, for our last point on how we regain the freedom. Uh, this week, many of you will go to fireworks. We go to these fireworks in Edmond. We're from Edmond. I think most fireworks displays do this, but well, how do the firework displays end? What's the, what do you call it? The grand finale. And there's always that moment, is this the grand finale? This is the grand finale. Everything prior to the grand finale is just the warm-up. But now... Paul gives us the grand finale. I mean, he's, he's talked about being held captive. And then verses 9 to 15, you could spend an entire year preaching through that, these verses. So, Justin, would you put that back up, verses 9 to 15? Um, Paul begins, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, you could spend a lot of time on that. That harkens back to verses 15 and 20 from chapter 1. He adds dwells bodily to it. So he's saying, present tense, Jesus is alive now. And Jesus in him, he's deity. It dwells in him. He's like the bodily form. He is God, visible God, he said earlier. But then he goes on, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all the rule and authority. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's talking to Gentiles. You have been grafted in 
through the spiritual circumcision of Jesus. And then he turns it into baptism. I lost my spot. Where was I? Someone yelled the verse 12. Okay, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. I mean, this language over and over, he's saying you are in Christ, Christ is in you, your identity's been taken away, and in a minute he'll say nailed to the cross, and, and you have this new identity. Um, do you hear the music in that? When I was, at, when I, when I was in college, I um, had been a Christian, just for, I mean, I've been a Christian a long time, but just recently sort of understood what that meant, and uh, I met a young guy, well, my age, so he's young then, um, and he just said, he said, I just came to Christ, and we started talking about his conversion. And he was like the technical term on fire for Jesus, and it was really beautiful. But he said, Ryan, what's wrong with all these other Christians? So what do you mean? He's like, everybody is so boring. Like, they don't do anything. It's like they've lost their fire. They've lost, and I felt like, is he talking about me? I felt defensive. Well, it's not going to all happen the way you're just on a high. No, I didn't say that. I sort of walked him through it a little bit. We had a good conversation. I never really got to know. Our house was like we had lots of people coming through. It's just a single conversation. But it's kind of haunted me ever since because I think we do that. We, many of you had a really good beginning. Many of you didn't. right? But regardless of if you can remember the beginning of your, of your faith, what we do know to be true is that you started in Christ. right? You died and he lived. And Paul tells us in the key verses, I think in this whole text, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is saying, here's the secret to having that freedom again. Don't add anything. It's not getting a new resolution, though those are fine. Maybe you read your scripture. There's a lot of great things, but your first move is to go back to the beginning. How did you come to Christ? How does a person come to Christ? Now, you might, again, I, I think for many of us, we might say, I don't really remember it. So meditating on this passage, meditating on our own life story, it might be helpful to realize, even though I don't know when exactly it happened, if, whether you do or not, at some point, my allegiance has changed, right? It might also be helpful to look at other people's story, right? Like my chains fell off, my heart was free, John Wesley. Um, look at other stories and go, is that true of me? My point is we have to go backwards in order to go forwards. Um, this, this, this illustration, I think, is, I hope I can pull it off. I've used it, I don't know if I've ever used it here at Grace, but you've heard it before. It's a Narnia, so I'm using my second C.S. Lewis quote. It's also the second Narnia quote. Does everyone know the Chronicles of Narnia? The voyage of the Don Treader, Eustace, he's the bad kid in the story. The rascal, the one you love to hate. But he comes to know Aslan. Uh, remember, he went after the treasure. He put on the treasure, and what happened to him? He became a dragon. That was the curse. And now he's a dragon, and, and the, the bracelet's hurting his wrist, and he's stuck, and he can't get healed. And so Aslan, Jesus, comes to him, and he's going to heal him. 
And, and Eustace is describing this to Edmund in the story, and he describes this glorious like pond, crystal clear bath, and he's going to get in this pond. But yet he has to be undressed first. So his job is to undress by taking off his skin. And he tries to take off his skin, and he takes off layer after layer, and nothing's changing. And so Aslan comes into his presence and says, you'll have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid of the claws. And I was almost desperate, so I let him do it. So I laid flat down on my back and let him undress me. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Like, have you ever picked a scab off a sore spell? <laughs> That's so gross, but that's what he wrote. He said, and then he says something I've never said. It hurt like Billy O. What does that mean, Abby? It just hurt a lot. Okay. It was such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled off the beastly stuff right off of me, and there it was. I was smooth and soft as a peeled switch. Anyone? Okay, it's like a stick that's been shaven off. Okay. And I, was small, and I was smaller than I had been. Again, like a stick, I see. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin. And he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. What a beautiful description of both conversion but also repentance. As you began conversion, so continue repentance. How do you know you're getting close to repentance? It hurts. It hurts. How do you know you're not repenting? It doesn't hurt. The words sound right. Apologies are coming out. Maybe some new adjustments are being made in your plan for the future. But repentance means I'm turning back to the cross, back to Jesus. It's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, who's bewitched you? You began by faith, but now you're continuing by by works, essentially, by efforts on your own. Do you return to Jesus like that? Have you done that lately? What would that look like? Practical, and then we'll close. In the second point, I talked about the areas that you, we have, whether it be reputation, um, whether it be appearance. Find your area. How will you know you're getting close? It'll feel like death, the thought of not having that anymore. Even if it's for a little while. Even if it's a break in something. I'm going to take a break from this. Um, and instead of doing the human thing and saying, forget it, I'm just going to quit dressing nice. I'm going to wear whatever I want or something like that. You do the Jesus thing, and you go to him, and you begin to confess that you find your identity in whatever this is. And it's very, very scary, because probably the thought of losing this thing feels like you'd lose a relationship or a career, right? It feels that large. But Jesus loves you, and he's not going to let you fall. And so you go to him with whatever this area is, and you lay it before him, and you begin to pray that the Holy Spirit will show you the reasons 
why these methods are so helpful for you. Why do I need this? Why do I want this? Why, why do I... Um, yeah, why do I need compliments so much? Why am I so afraid of conflict? Whatever it is. And you start to pray that, and you'll know you're praying on the right vein because it's painful. And you'll want to stop and say, that was a good start, and move on to the next part of your day. But open your heart up to the Lord and let him in. As you began in Christ, so continue, rooted and built up, established in faith, to feel that freedom. What would it feel like to have that freedom, that Nobody can judge you. Like, I need to close, but I, I'm just going to say this. It's like, I, I remember as a kid, what would it be like if you couldn't die? Like, you know, like a superpower, like no matter what, a train hits you and you just stand back up. Like, wouldn't you live a little differently? You know, someone comes up to you and tries to like tear you down. And you're like, oh, Teflon, didn't bother me. I have Jesus. Like, I want you to want that. Because that's the freedom he offers you. That's the freedom he offered the Colossians. And it's so stark that just a few years after this church was planted, they began to be taken captive again, just like Galatia and just like you. Please be aware of our tendencies to be captivated by the flesh, by the law. It was nailed to the cross once and for all. Now you're free. Let's pray. Jesus, um, Forgive us. Forgive us for allowing Satan and the rulers and the authorities to convince us that you are dangerous and mean or boring or just not helpful in areas that really matter to us. These are lies. I pray this morning we would return to our first love to find freedom in you. Everything. All the treasures, all the riches are found in you. So our freedom is completely found by resting in the work on the cross. That you've canceled our debt. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to that reality. If there are people here that don't believe, I pray they would get a glimpse of the joy of being in relationship with the God of the universe who loves them. Amen.